Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's going to be towards the end of your Bibles. There are two books there called Thessalonians, and we're looking at both of them, but we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And um, as you're doing that, I'd like to just remind you of just the simple context of this book. This is one of the first books that Paul ever wrote. It could be the very first book of this young church. That, and, and these three things you need to know um, about this, this church in Thessalonica. First, that Paul really loved these people. I mean, he was absolutely overwhelmed with them. He was excited for them and happy for them. He's very proud of them, like us, right? Um, They were suffering from great persecution, like the threat of death, and some were even dying. And that's why Paul had to leave. That's why he's writing this letter in the first place, because they were trying to kill Paul. A third thing that you need to understand in this book, in these two books, is there's a prevailing thought. It It comes up in every chapter, sometimes multiple times, that Jesus would return at any moment, Okay? Any time now, and they thought that in the early days, that Jesus would be back any time, and then they'd be done. They'd be the end of history as we know it. And so Paul's kind of answering questions in many ways, respective of that outline. And so he tells them, I, I love you. He says, I love you like a mother uh, nurtures a young child. I love you that way. And he said also, he says, I love you like a father that's trying to push his uh, teenagers to do the best that they can possibly do because that's, I want the most for them. And he did that. Check. He, he, told, he told them he was so proud of them for standing up in persecution. Okay, Standing strong is kind of an overarching theme in both of these books. And he did that. Check. And so then there's this other thing that's, that's nagging in, in many respects, and that is what about the people that we love that have already died? What about the people that um, we call family and, and they've been tortured and even killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ? And so when we look at chapter 4 and we'll look at chapter 5 again um, next week, we're going to learn about what Paul has to say to give us great confidence in that. So I'm going to try to read chapter 4, 13 through 18, and I want you to be listening for a few things. One, I want you to be listening for how Paul is trying to give them absolute and complete confidence about their own fate after death, okay? I want you to understand that he wants to give them complete confidence about their loved ones that have already passed, and I want you to see, I've said it twice, complete confidence, okay? He's consoling them not with wishful thinking. He's not going to, he's just, gonna, oh, I hope it turns out this way. He's going to quote reliable sources. I want you to be listening for the reliable sources. Now, let's take a run at this, okay? Verse 13. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, by the way, means have died before us, okay? I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. Now, according to the Lord's own words, the Lord who died and came back. So he's quite authoritative in the context of life and death. According to the Lord's own words, okay, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of, the, of an archangel, with the trumpet of God and call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, after that, okay, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, therefore, be encouraged and encourage one another with these words. Now, what's the problem? The problem we're talking about today is death. And death is an enemy. There are many facets of death, but certainly the one that's most glaring to us is that, he, that death is an enemy. And so while there's many facets of death, there's many, I guess, expressions of grief. And since the most brilliant facet is that he's an enemy, that I would say the most obvious consequence of grief would be anger. We should, we should grieve, okay, but usually grief means anger because death is an enemy. When you look at the way Jesus, we're talking about death and grieving and, and grieving with hope, not hopeless like other people, but when you talk about grieving, you, you cannot get around this idea of being in, enraged at death. When you look at the grieving of Jesus Christ, you, we know the story of Jesus going to visit Lazarus after he's, he has died. And, and if you've ever been in Bible memory, like, contest, you know the shortest verse is Jesus wept. That's the gimme, right? Jesus wept. And so you know that verse maybe for that reason, or you know it because people talk about it at funerals. But the bigger context of that story is much uh, more illustrative to what, what grief should be. Because when Jesus, absolutely, he wept, but he was, he was angry, and so you can see in verse 33, he's coming into the town, and, and everybody keeps bumping into him, saying, you should have been here earlier. You could have saved Lazarus' life. Yeah, I know you loved him. And when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary, and the, and the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. Okay? And he asked, uh, where have you laid him? And they replied, Lord, come and you'll see. And there it is, verse 35, Jesus wept. And thus the people who had come to mourn, they said, look how much he loved him. Okay. And then verse 38, this one verse later, he says, and Jesus, when he gets to the tomb, finally he says, he was intensely moved again. So sandwiched in between this single shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, are these two phrases. Well, there's one phrase, it's repeated, and then, and then another one that's joining them. In verse um, 33, I guess it says, intensely moved and greatly distressed. Intensely moved in the original language means to be deeply indignant, to be shuddering with deep emotion. A, a good translation would be, he is quaking with rage. So Jesus was quaking with rage, and then he wept. And then he's at the, the tomb, and there he is again. He's just shaking. And the people say, oh, they, they couldn't help but notice, oh, how he loved him. Yes. Why? Because he wept? No, maybe because he had his fist clenched and his teeth were grinding because he was quaking with rage. And why would that be? It's his planet. 
and he rules it. And he knows Lazarus will be coming out. And yet he is furious. Because death is an intruder. It is not from here. We were not made to die. We were made to live. This place is broken, and this is where broken shows up. We were not made to die. We were made to live. We were not made to grow weaker and weaker, but stronger and stronger. We were made to become brighter and brighter, not more dull. We were made to look newer, not more wrinkled. (laughs) We were made to become, not to end. Death is an enemy, and death should be hated. It has intruded onto a perfect planet. And it says ever since Genesis, I mean, it's just, it's writ throughout the scriptures that since Genesis on, there, there is a breaking and a wrecking of our lives, our bodies, and our relationships. And so when, when, when something like this happens, then the, the, the natural Logical, appropriate consequence, grief, is rage. Body quaking rage. When my, my mother died almost 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago now, and I didn't know, um, I wasn't accustomed to death. We didn't have grandparents growing up. They had already passed, and, and so I didn't know what to do. And uh, I was extremely busy. We had a young family, and I was very busy here. And I, but I knew, but I knew that you can't run from these things because they, they, they'll always catch you, and it causes more damage than, than trying to ignore it. And so I did, but I didn't, know how to, I didn't know how to do anything, and I didn't know how to look at death because, um, again, there's many facets of death, and by the time my mother passed, uh, death was all but a friend. She'd been suffering for two years, and the last year was especially uh, traumatic, and, and we looked at her continued um, life as being nothing more than a cruel dragging out of, of pain for no purpose. And so death had become somewhat of a friend by that point, but there was still something going on. And so I have a, a good friend that's a counselor, and so we would go for these walks, and I would say, hey, he would ask me, well, what's... How do you feel? And I said, I don't, I don't know. Um, because, you know, I would, let me just describe. I would say my surface waters are quite tranquil, and it, things are, seem to be well, but I know there is a raging storm underneath. And I, I don't know how to put words on it. He goes, we'll try to put words on it, because that will be very important for you to understand what you're dealing with. And so, you know, again, after, weeks after the funeral, um, the nightmares came, and, and they were so filled with, uh, let's just say, vocabulary that I would never use. Vulgar and violent and cruel and crude, and they, and, and, it, and they were coming from my mouth in my dreams, and I would wake myself up because I was afraid of me in these dreams. And... Uh, and so, again, I, I went for another walk with my counseling friend, and he said, uh, what, what, what are you so angry at? I said, I don't, I don't know, but I am, I am really mad. Are you mad at your mother? Is there stuff you didn't talk about? Is there things that you wanted to say? I said, no, no, no. I'm mad. I am, I am livid at this illness 
that took her from us and that made her so weak because she was so strong and then that took her life. She, she, she was gone before she was 65. She never saw her, her first granddaughter. And, it was, and all of that was stolen from us. And so I am furious. I hate death. I hate sickness and I hate death. And he looked at me and he said, good. Now you understand. Death is an intruder. It is an enemy. It is to be hated. And so the question is, that's, that's going on in this book, and I hope in your lives, is what is Jesus going to do about death? It, right? It is the ultimate bully. And, and so Paul comes in and says, you know, I've got to answer this question because I love you, you are dying for Jesus, and I want to give you some hope that's not based on sentimentality. What are you going to do, Jesus, about death? And so Paul writes in the first few sentences there, brothers, I don't want, look at verse 13, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who die or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and he rose again, so we believe that God with, will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him, those who have died with him, according to the Lord's own words. We tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. He says, you need to grieve, but with hope. There's people that don't grieve. They think they can kind of uh, power their way through it, and boy, that wrecks a soul. You know, the avoidance of grief and the, and, and the fear of anger, right, will ruin a soul. But, but if you just do the rage, okay, but, but don't have hope. He's telling us to have this grief, have this anger with hope. If you do it without the hope, it just turns you, it just turns you bitter. It spoils you. It poisons your spirit. And so you can see how people take one or the other, right? They, they, they try to ignore the rage and say, it's okay, they're there, it's natural to die. They don't do well. And then you can see people that hold on to the rage but because they don't have hope. And Paul is saying here, he says, look, you take the anger and the grief, and then you just marinate it in it. You just marinate hope. Just soak it in. Let it absorb the hope because then you, you are facing these two truths, and truths will set you free. The rage will be good for your soul, and the hope will be good for your spirit, and it will make you, instead of bitter, right, without Without hope, it, instead of making you bitter, it will make you wise, and it will make you compassionate. It will make you humble. It will bring in tenderness to your life if you just let hope marinate in that grief. Don't, grief like, don't grieve like other men without hope. Grieve with this kind of hope that we know about. So where do you get the hope? So that's, what, that's the answer to the question about the death. But how do you, how do you get the hope that, to apply to this grief, to marinate the grief in? Well, he says here, you know, how, how, dealing with, you know, um, the, the lack of fear of death. He says he doesn't want us to fear this death. He wants us not to be ignorant. Where does it come from? Well, that's when the next section of the Scripture brings in. It says it's because of the return of the king. 
And when Paul talks about this return of the king, I want you to see that when, from now on, it's, I mean, kind of the language gets louder. I mean, if there's background music, it's just it's getting horrendous at this point because he's going to talk about Jesus' return, and it's just going to get, it's going to get more pervasive in its power over death because he's going to talk about the return of Jesus Christ being the king, and he's going to present this, he's going to say, in all of his glory, in all of his authority, in all of his presence. And if you understand what's happening, it's very difficult for us to read these passages and understand the depth of them because we're so far removed from a monarchy. But when, I think when they read these words, when they heard these words in a church setting, they envisioned what we are to envision, and that is this, this um, presentation of a king or an emperor with all its splendor and glory, with all of his authority and with all of his presence and it shouts down and crushes death. So let me, let me show you. Um, look at 15 through 17, if you don't mind. Uh, according to the words, uh, I'm sorry, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, uh, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay? The Lord himself, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. And with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air so that we will be with the Lord forever. When we look at verse 15, you can see that he's talking about the king's glory. Because the word arrival, it says, in, it says the coming of the Lord. And it's a, it's a, that's a figure of speech, the coming of the Lord. And then later on in verse 17, he'll say meeting. Those two words, if you were a New Testament reader, especially a, right about the time when this book was ret, written, you would have the memory of what it's like for a new emperor or Caesar to be coming. Because this, that's, what this, that's what this means. It says the coming of the Lord is a phrase that means the arrival. And we call it the return, the return of Christ. And we, we, we act like that. We made that up. It should be in quotes because it, it preceded even Jesus is talking here. The people knew what it, it meant. It meant when a king was going to come, and again, in 66 AD, they had a new emperor. But when this would happen, as the king would come, everyone would be so excited in our little town that we couldn't contain ourselves, and people would run to the emperor. They would run as far as they could. They would go as, as far out as they possibly could get because then there would be these great parades and these celebrations, and he would ride in, and it would be, you know, we'd have rich banquets and speeches, and, and they'd go to the temple and visit that, and they would probably build a statue for him. They would mint special coins for this arrival, this special arrival. They'd be dedications of special places to commemorate this event. And, and it would be lavish, sometimes for weeks on end, the coming of this king. And so when Paul talks about this in this vocabulary, that's what he's talking about with Jesus. And in our minds, if we were first century believers, we would be thinking in those terms that, that the reason we, able, we were able to get hope is because of the glory of this coming king. Now, there's a very famous historian in the first century. His name is Josephus. You might know that name. Uh, a lot of our history in the first century is known from this um, Jewish convert that, that wrote history. And so this, now with all of that in mind, okay, listen to what Josephus writes about the coming of an emperor in 66 AD and how some people run out first and meet the king 
And then other people in the town who can't, sometimes the women and children stay behind, and they would eventually meet him. Sounds like two waves, a lot like those who have already died go first, right? And then those who haven't will meet him later. With that in mind, okay, that's what Paul said is going to happen when Jesus comes. Now, this is what happened in 66 AD with the new emperor. Amid such feelings of universal goodwill and higher rank, impatient of waiting for him, hastened for the great distance from Rome to be first to greet him. They all ran out there, and it is good. No, anybody that could uh, delay their other meetings would stay back, but many of them, the crowds would go and get there as soon as they could, as far as they could. That the very city from where they first came experienced the satisfaction satisfactory of the inhabitants, and those who went outnumbered those who remained. And then when he was reported to be approaching, those who had been told that were, that were laid behind were told of the friendliness and the reception of each party, and they ran out, the remaining population, with wives and children, and they were waiting along the roadsides to meet him. And each group, as he passed, in delight of the spectacle as he moved by, his appearance it gave them all a manner of cries, and they were hailing benefactor, savior, only worthy emperor of Rome. The whole city, moreover, was filled like a temple with garland and incense. That's what, that's what happened in real life. Paul is saying, yeah, you remember that happened not long ago? This is what's going to happen when Jesus comes. And when they say, hail good emperor, they're going to be talking about the emperor of emperors, the king of kings, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to this. What's Jesus going to do about that? He's going to, about death, he's going to come and he's going to come in all of his glory. And when he comes, he will come with all authority because he's the king. And you can see in the next section, when, Je when Jesus shows up, you can see all, this, uh, all these words uh, addressing issues of authority or power or splendor. The first thing that he talks about is the Lord commands. It says that he commands. And, and the word that's used there is a word that is used when a military officer says, get to it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an order. This is, what I'm, this is a battle cry. And when he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out, he comes out. And he's going to say this to all the dead. Paul's saying, look, he's going to say this to all the dead, and he's going to say, you're well. And people obey him because he's the king, and he has all kinds of authority. It's not just because he says this, but the next thing it says is that an archangel seconds him. He, he echoes that. Now, archangels are higher-ranking angels. There's, a, I think there's... Maybe nine of them mentioned in the Bible. doesn't say which one this is. But the commander-in-chief says, meet me. And the archangel says, meet him. You know, he's just echoing this for the whole planet because he has that authority. The archangel loves the authority of the king. He loves to submit to his king, and he loves to spread the word of the king. It's not just the words of the king and then it's accompanying angel. It says, and the trumpet blasts. The trumpet blast, and it's not a musical instrument, right? It's easy to see the trumpet is a musical instrument, but that's not what it's used for. It's primarily used in the context of military. It's when, right, you know, even our military, the bugle blows, right? And it tells the troops what to do. And that's how it's been in history. The, the orders are barked out with this trumpet, and so this trumpet blast, and in the Older Testament, a lot of times the trumpet is used to announce 
right? Um, the exiled Israelis coming back to the homeland, the, the verbs or the words that were used by the prophets were trumpet blasts. And if, if you know the story of um, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the first real appearance of God to the people of Israel, you remember it talks about the trumpets blasting, and they, just, and they kept getting louder and louder and louder. So I, I'm, what I'm trying to tell you here is our biggest foe, death, has made these poor people afraid. And they're grieving, and they're grieving without hope. And Paul says, no, no, don't you grieve like other men without hope. You grieve with hope that the king will come in, in all of his glory, but all of his authority, because he's going to speak, and everybody obeys those words. And the archangel echoes those commands, and the trumpets will blow. And then we will bring in, like, the ultimate exodus this time, where everyone comes out of their captivities, and they enjoy the presence. The last thing is the very presence. So he talks about him him being there in glory and now in authority, but his very presence. It doesn't say that you can kind of hang out. It says that he will be there with you, coming out to meet you. Again, there's the word meet that, that accompanies uh, return, and the idea of meet was to come out so that you could enjoy the entrance of the king after a great conquest. Right? It, it's, not like, it's not like when Patton rolled into Paris and everybody was waiting for Patton, cheering, thanks, Patton, for getting us out of this. They ran out and said, no, 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 we want to be part of the parade. We want to meet you in the sky. We want to get to you before you get down here. We're going to meet you there because we want to be part of the spoils of war. We're going to meet him. And look, look what it said. This is kind of free, but in verse 17, and it says, with others. So, I mean, that's what the people are concerned about. It's like, what about the people that died before me? And what about, you know, these friends that I love so much? It says that we will meet with him with others. And so the idea here is, is this is a material body. Again, don't grieve like other people without hope. The hope that we have is we get, we get a material body. We get a, a resurrected body that's a lot like Jesus' body. This is not our final form. And, and we will, it will eat and it will walk and it will, it will work. <laughs> it will work. All of it will work. You get, how else do you defeat death if you don't end up with a family that you ought to have? Brothers and sisters that love your king, right? And, and, then, and then you get to be you. Finally. With all, without all the stuff, right? The, the, these repetitive sins and these kind of these addictions and these, these stupid things that beset us over and over again. We're free. And then we get to look into the eyes of other people because they have physical bodies and we get to look into those glorified bodies and you, and you say, you know what? I saw that in you. I saw these, these glimpses of what you could be on occasion and now there you are in your splendor. You have shed everything that's wrong. And all of this happens before the procession into the conquered land. What is death or the defeat of death unless it is an absolute conquest of everything that it has killed? 
And so Paul, in a very pastoral and caring, because he loves them, loving way, he says, I want to tell you that you should, you should have rage and anger just saturated in hope because this history, when it comes to an end, will no longer be out of order. And there's no need to fear death, that grief and hope is an appropriate response. And then, and, I mean, if you look at other, right, Paul quotes an Older Testament passage. If you, can, if you can see this idea that death is not to be feared, right, because Jesus has conquered death. He says that, right? He died and rose. He says that in the early verses. And so it's not to be feared. It's to be hated, but it's not to be feared. And if you have the right attitude about death, then you can mock it. When Paul writes, I think in Corinthians, he talks, he says, he says, um, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? I mean, why does he say that? And if, if you think he's talking smack, you get it. He is standing over this death like Muhammad Ali did that time where he's standing over mocking his victim. Yes, it is unsportsmanlike conduct. Yes, it is a personal foul for over-celebrating. And that's what Paul's doing when he's quoting that passage. He says, oh, death, where's your victory now? Huh? Come on, grave. Where's your sting? You have nothing anymore. A great hymn writer George Herbert wrote this, this prelude to one of his hymns, and it's a dialogue between man and death. And listen, listen to the scandalous mocking of death. So the Christian starts off, and he says, Alas, poor death, where is your glory? Where is thy famous force, your ancient sting? And death says, ah, Alas, poor mortal, void of a story. Go and read how I killed your king. <laughs> poor death, Christian says. And who was it that was hurt at death? Your curse being laid on him makes you accursed. And death said, let losers talk because you shall die. These very arms shall crush you. Christian says, well, spare not. Do thy worst. I shall be one day better before than before, and you shall be much worse. You shall be no more. Spare not. Give me your best, death, because I will be better than before, and death, you will be no more. The same writer says this about death. Death used to be an executioner, but because of the gospel, he is now a gardener. He's just planting seeds that will turn into great trees. We don't fear this. So Paul comes to us and says, I know you are afraid sometimes, but there's no need for fear. And I know you can be angry, and that's appropriate when it comes to death. But hope, let there be hope, because the Lord himself spoke of this return. We're going we're gonna to learn more about it next week. Here's how we apply it today. We kind of jumped ahead at some verses because the verses we jumped over are ethical verses. We talk about how you should live, and you need to live in light of what we looked at today. We need to live in in light of knowing that Jesus Christ has conquered death, we, we have won on his behalf because of his, uh, of his conquest, and now we can live courageously, even recklessly for his glory. Grieve for your own life and grieve for the lives of those people that you love, but grieve with hope.
because Christ has conquered death. That's a great story. Let's pray that we could believe that to be true. Lord Jesus, um, Lord, indeed, Lord Jesus, Lord, I would ask that you would uh, help us grasp the depth of the meaning of these, just these few, this one paragraph that you have conquered uh, this, this enemy that will hunt each and every one of us down, that most of us live our lives in fear of non-existence. And then Paul comes in and tells us, he's quoting you saying, no, 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 you will exist forever like you are meant to. Lord, I would ask that you would somehow give us some kind of moment to understand that we will die, that you would help us grasp what life would be like if we only had six months left, maybe a year left, and how we would alter our whole lives because of that, and then give us the hope that comes from knowing that you are the great conqueror, you are the king that will make an an appearance, that will have an arrival that will be grand and glorious, full of power and authority. We long for that day. Let us meditate on that. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.